Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The new Avatar sequel is on its way to becoming Hollywood's top grossing movie of all time. Along the way, though, it's taking heat from indigenous audiences for appropriating indigenous cultures and missing an opportunity to avoid certain stereotypes. The good news is it gives us a chance to talk about futurism through a native lens and discuss some compelling stories and media by native creators. We'll do that right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Crow Creek Tribal Chairman says more must be done to bolster education in rural parts of the state. That's one message he brought to lawmakers during the annual State of the Tribes Address. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger has more. Chairman Peter Lenke says the state and tribes have a shared responsibility to educate all children in South Dakota. He says several things stand in the way of that, including access to food and educators. It is common knowledge that South Dakota suffers from a teacher shortage that has forced schools to hire long-term substitutes to educate our children. We need to work cooperatively to find a way so there are enough teachers for all South Dakota schools, whether they are public, tribal, or private. Len Keek encourages lawmakers to work with colleges, universities, and the Department of Education to find ways to increase the number of educational staff in the state. South Dakota teacher pay is at 50th in the nation. Representative Tamara St. John is Dakota from Sisseton. The Republican lawmaker says part of the issue is also related to infrastructure, both rural and tribal. We're very much the same. Um, As far as supporting having great teachers, the fact that we don't have housing and the fact that we don't have infrastructure for housing, those things are real. And I can imagine that's true with uh, a lot of the rural areas. The Republican-controlled legislature is moving fast to place $200 million into a fund for housing grants and low-interest loans. 70% of those dollars will go towards communities with a population of less than 50,000. Crow Creek Chairman Len Keek also criticized the new social studies standards revisions for the state that were drafted by a professor from a conservative university in Michigan. The draft removed several references to Native American culture from the original. Len Keek says the state has managed the revision process for years without outside influence and interpretation. For National Native News, I'm Lee Schrubinger. Interior Secretary Deb Holland and Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs Brian Newland will hold the next two stops on the Indian Boarding School Road to Healing Tour in Arizona. They'll visit Phoenix and a community on the Navajo Nation January 20th and 22nd. The tour is part of Holland's investigation into U.S. Indian Boarding Schools. The stops will provide former students and descendants an opportunity to share boarding school experiences. Shandine Mayo of Fairbanks hopes to be the next Miss Alaska. She's worked as a TV news reporter and is seeking a degree in rural development. Recently, Mayo worked with CBS to raise awareness of the importance of indigenous representation in media. I've never really seen myself uh, in media in any other place like that. So I think I would really want to champion narrative change, especially as um, a voice that is not as heard in the industry. 
Mayo is Koyakon Athabascan and Navajo. Her platform focuses on bringing a positive narrative for and about her communities. Rural communities like the one that I grew up in are important and were necessary. I really wanted to share that message and to, um, you know, give hope. And it's really been an exciting process. Mayo spent the year getting ready for the competition and says she's received much community support. For the evening gown competition, Mayo will be wearing earrings made by artist Deluna Erickson. And what makes this super special is that these earrings will be reflecting a traditional design uh, and they'll also be made from natural resources. So I'll be taking my heritage on stage. This weekend, Mayo will take part in the Miss Alaska competition in Anchorage. The winner will go on to represent Alaska in the Miss USA competition later this year in Reno, Nevada. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A historical master trauma class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 24, 2023 at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Finding My Dance by Rhea Thundercloud, a picture book celebrating the author's journey from childhood powwows to professional dancing. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The creators of the new Avatar sequel give us a new futuristic account of colonialism and indigenous resistance through their perspective. And it's getting plenty of pushback from Native audiences for cultural appropriation and a tired white savior storyline, among other things. It is, as expected, doing very well at the box office. Whether you've seen the Avatar blockbuster or not, you might also be interested in other films, comics, and artwork from Native creators that have a richer take on indigeneity in the future. We have some suggestions for you this hour. You can join us, too. If you saw Avatar 2, what'd you think? What's your take on how a futuristic indigenous movie should play out? Who would be the hero? Who's the villain? Give us a call right away at 1-800-996-2848 to share your perspectives on a futuristic world. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us first today in Los Angeles is Johnny J. She's the founder of A Tribe Called Geek and co-founding member of the Fan Organizer Coalition. She is Oto, Missouri, and Choctaw. Johnny, welcome back to NEC. Hey, thank you for having me. Johnny, let's get things going here. I know you had some issues with the first Avatar movie. Have you seen Avatar 2? I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what's holding you back? Um, well, you know, it's it's the same thing. Like, there's nothing original. The, the story is basically the same, um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of frustrating. You know, we've had such success in the last, like, year and a half with Native representation, and it's so disappointing to see that kind of being overshadowed by this, billion-dollar film franchise that is just a misappropriation of multiple indigenous communities and issues in 
knowing that none of that money that this movie is, is making is going to any of those indigenous people. It's not helping any of the causes. Um, you know, it's just a more commercialization of our trauma and the struggles that we face in our communities. So, you know, I'm not really inclined to kind of contribute to that. Mm -hmm. Well, Johnny, reflecting back on the first Avatar movie, it's been 12 years now since it came out. What what were your major grievances with that first film? Um, Well, one, it freaked me out, right? Because it's literally colonizers inserting themselves in indigenous bodies. You know, and we have this um, problem with pretensionism where, you know, white people are taking on Native identities and inserting themselves in our communities, um, you know, as leaders of different movements and in, in different institutions, whether it's educational. And that's what we're seeing in Avatar. They're literally putting this man, non-Native man, into an Avatar to infiltrate an indigenous community to kind of manipulate them, to kind of get them to, you know, surrender, you know, peacefully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then later they kind of take on this kind of savior role where they become the almost like a leader of this tribe, where it's almost like they're saying that they can be better indigenous people than the actual indigenous people. And that story kind of continues from what I've seen with the second movie, where, you know, now it's like, okay, they're inserted in their community, and they kind of take on some of the issues that we have in our communities as well with, you know, a lot of Natives not feeling like they're Native enough, like they don't belong. So we see that struggle kind of being co-opted, and this is something that, you know, we've seen a lot of pretendians do in our communities where they kind of take on that victim role. You know, it's like they're not being accepted, that natives are the big mean bullies, you know, for mm-hmm. not accepting them. And it's a, it's a story, you know, we see this playing out. And, you know, again, it's, it's not just the identity issues that was really problematic for me, but also just kind of like the commercialization of the trauma and struggles that we face in our communities. And in this case, you know, it's something that we see a lot with Hollywood um, and, and in how they pick and choose which indigenous people to kind of, I guess you would say, use as a screen um, to kind of be like, well, you know, we got permission from these people. We got permission. You know, we reached out to these people. And in the case of Avatar, you know, it was the Shingu tribe down in Brazil. And, you know, we've seen this with Eli Roth as well when he did um, Green Inferno. And he went down to South America and he met with you know, some of the uncontacted indigenous people there, and they go there. And, you know, these are people who, you know, like a lot of indigenous people, are very underrepresented. You know, they don't have the visibility to really get the issues out there that they're facing in their communities, um, you know, to make people understand what it is they're going through. And so they go to these tribes, and they kind of exploit that. Because, you know, for a lot of tribes, and we know exactly what they're going through because we were in that same position when we didn't have visibility, when we depended on, you know, non-Native people and people with, you know, bigger platforms to, you know, kind of help us get that message out. And so they're kind of exploiting that, but at the same time using them as a screen. 
And because then it makes the rest of indigenous people who do have that visibility now, who do have that voice, it kind of makes us look like we're marginalizing the issues that they're facing by not supporting the movie. Mm -hmm. Johnny, I think a lot of Native people would would totally agree with those criticisms, but it begs the question, <laughs> let me ask, I mean, in a perfect world, what should the ideal Avatar movie look like then? You know, the, and this is where it's at. So, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that James Cameron actually did, you know, invest a lot of time, you know, having, you know, people like May the Maori people involved. He had a lot of different indigenous people worldwide involved in this movie, but yet all of the work that they contributed was never really seen. Like they never got the credit that they deserved for the film. And instead, you know, he kind of whitewashed that and replaced their characters with, you know, with non-Native characters. And so, you know, he basically, you know, had people come in and was like, you know, we want to use kind of like a haka and so had people coming in and, you know, there's actually footage of them performing this haka, but then actually, you know, what is in the film or what is actually used is something that is recreated by the non-Indigenous people. So a lot of that gets cut. And so, you know, in the ideal world, like a movie like Avatar, you know, could exist, but it means meaningfully collaborating with indigenous people and letting us lead the development of the story, you know, letting us hold control over that narrative instead of just being like, okay, well, you know what, we want to use this. We want to use that. You know, it's being able to really meaningfully and deliberately include native voices and indigenous voices worldwide to make sure that no one is being misrepresented and that their identities, their culture, their traditions, and their imagery is not being misappropriated. Well, speaking of indigenous voices, what are, what are some alternative films that, that you think Native audiences might like instead of Avatar 2? Well, one, I just watched Slashback not too long ago, and it was incredible. You know, I there's a film called Attack Block that I absolutely fell in love with um, years ago. And this just kind of like brought back that nostalgia, that fun, but also talking about indigenous futurism. <laughs> you know, this is how natives fight back against invading alien forces and it's native youth doing this. So, you know, it was an incredible film and I think people would really, really just love that. I mean, we've seen the positive responses that films like Blood Quantum, you know, that, um, you know, even, oh, I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me now. Um, but there was a, a film a while back, and I want to say, oh, my mind's drawing a blank this morning. <laughs> I'll, I'll think of it later. Okay. But, you know, there's been a lot of uh, films that surround indigenous futurism. And actually, if you go to a tribe called geek.com, um, we actually do have a list of, you know, sci-fi films that people should be watching or should be aware of that are native, that are native stories, you know, led by natives, created by natives, because, you know, we love sci-fi as natives, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> right? our cultures obviously, you know, inspire a lot of mainstream sci-fi. And so, you know, it's, like, and we don't want it to, like, we want to inspire people, you know, like we want to get our narratives out there, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's taking the time to really invest in native led narratives and native creatives 
giving us the chance to show the world like what we can do, you know, in these different genres, because we have those stories, we have the imagination and we have the talent and the know-how to do it. So it's just like giving us the chance to do that without having to always rely on it being projected through this non-native lens. Johnny, this term indigenous futurism, could could you provide, we have to take a break here in about another minute, but if you could just provide kind of a straightforward, easy to understand definition of that term, because it's not as simple as just calling it native science fiction, is it? No, not at all. You know, it's about um, indigenous imagination. And, you know, it's a term that was coined by Grace Dillon, who is phenomenal, um, phenomenal writer. But, you know, basically indigenous futurisms is like using our radical imagination to reimagine not just, you know, our past, our present and our future, but, you know, kind of being able to turn it all on its heel to to take back like all these narratives that we have, you know, like where we're, um, you know, defeated people and rewriting that story instead of people telling us like what the story is, what our narrative is, you know, it's us using our radical imaginations to take that power back and to show the world like what we imagine as indigenous people, what our past could have been, how it, how we imagine it could have been if thing, if colonization hadn't happened. You know, it's mm-hmm. in reimagining our future and our present to, you know, show that, you know, we are still a healing people. Okay. Like we're still in the midst of determining who it is that we Johnny, are and who I'm we're going to be in the future. We're going to have to take a break. I'm sorry, but, but I really appreciate that. I think that really helps clarify uh, what Indigenous futurism is and, and helps us set the tone for today's show. So anybody who's had a chance to see Avatar yet, let us know what you thought of it. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy involves embracing other races and cultures. We'll talk with Native educators about how they approach lessons about the civil rights leader, and we'll discuss the importance of teaching students about other people, cultures, and history. That's coming up on the next Native America Calling. Medicaid <laughs> You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about futuristic indigenous stories and artwork. What does the indigenous future look like to you? Are there any native books, arts, or games set in the future that you enjoy? Call in and tell us. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Again, that's 1-800-996-2848. Joining us now from Bethany, Connecticut, where he's working on a clay project, is Virgil Ortiz. He's an author, an artist, and a potter, among other things, and he's Coach Di Pueblo. Virgil, you've been on the show before, too. Welcome back. Hey there. Thank you for having me again. Nice to hear your, everybody's voices. You bet, Virgil. And uh, how about you? Have you had a chance to check out Avatar 2 yet? I did. I just seen it. Um, 
I, I mean, coming from a, a artist that is that is dabbling and making um, videos and film, I thought the CGI was incredible. But my first question, like what we're talking about right now, was like um, what was a little bit of, was addressed was like, did James Cameron actually consult with any indigenous folks? I have no idea. Like, oh, what stood out mainly to me was the Mari Haka dance, and um, did he really? Um, reach out to indigenous people like for any consulting or anything i have no idea do you well let's go back to to johnny you mentioned uh some consultations but maybe not giving adequate credit or acknowledgement johnny what do you know how just how in depth were his was his were native people involved in the project well see that's one of the things that is kind you know that we really need to question because he never gives specific communities. Like when he's talked about the consultations, he always says, well, I've had indigenous communities. I've had Maori people, but he never mentions like specific communities. And there is behind the scene video of Maori people performing the Hakka dance that, um, what that kind of inspired what was used in the film. But again, like none of those people were credited in the film. Um, he hasn't, you know, I've not seen any, community online, you know, kind of coming forward and being like, you know, we had the honor of working with James Cameron on this or anything like that. So, you know, it okay. really is questionable. Okay. Well, well Virgil, okay. yeah. And, and Virgil, you said you, you really appreciate the, the CGI and some of the technical aspects that went into the film, but you do take umbrage with uh, some of these portrayals of indigenous culture. So let me just ask you, I mean, is, is it a, a movie that you would recommend to native audiences? Um, when I'm finished with mine, I'd recommend mine. <laughs> and I'm not just kidding. Like, I know, like, that's an important uh, list that uh, um, Johnny would have on the website to check out those movies, and I'm going to do the same to go check it out. But, man, I mean, like, I, my, main, my, my main point of view is to, like, really, um, when I do lectures and talk, um, interact with different universities around the state, um, with all the students, is to really bring the, um, um, to their attention of, like, the importance of, protecting their intellectual property um, and to really, you know, look that up and to protect what they're creating, you know, don't put it online immediately unless you're um, willing to, um, to get ripped off, plagiarized, whatever. So like, um, you know, it's just um, my advice to artists and creators breaking into the inter- entertainment business, like hire a trademark attorney, like protect all your IP at all costs. Like, for example, I'm like the pr- principal owner of um made a Native America trademark, right? And it, it's, a, it's a lengthy process. It's um, expensive, but it's also rewarding because, like, I filed, like, 15 years ago, and when you're building a company and brand and businesses, like, you have to understand the, the that type of angle from it, from the lawyers, um, because, like, now, yes, we um, are acknowledging what is happening in the huge movie industry of appropriation and all that, but like, I mean, we have the power as indigenous people to all come together and make our own um, really huge uh, mega blockbuster movie, right? Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's ways to actually move forward with it. And that's what my whole art world, my whole life has been these past two decades, is to educate globally about the uh, 1680 Pueblo Revolt. And most people don't know about that, um, the first American Revolution, what happened. And um, so, like, I, I love um, sci-fi, so... Um, for me to be able to really portray something that I love and to get my point across is to combine our past, our present, and our future. 
um, having the Pueblo Revolt happening, happening simultaneously at two different, uh, three different time dimensions of the past, present, and future. But this allows me to create superhero characters and all these sci-fi characters so that uh, the younger generation will really pick up on it. And if you have super flashy characters, it's a lot easier to get their attention. You know, right. just like the uh, movies that are coming into play right now, like the Black Panther and all that, right? So that's and like Blue Beetles coming out now, I think. So I'm excited to um, uh, to look at uh, watch that movie. But yeah, definitely the importance of protecting your intellectual property. Um, um, okay. It's a lot. It's really easy. Mo- Go ahead. Yeah. Well, Virgil, I mean, tell us more about this futuristic retelling of the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, because this is really, you know, at the heart of what you do. And you've been involved in in indigenous futurism type art for, for many years, two decades, uh, as you just shared. So and, and there are some parallels between what you're doing there and an avatar, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the only way that, I mean, it's reached me. Like, I mean, I, I love old movies like Star Wars, the first um, one that came out, I think it was like six or seven years old. And then, of course, TV shows, Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica, right? That made a huge impact on my life. So that's the same thing that without reinventing the wheel, it's like to really get the next generation excited or even people that are my age excited and to really point the direction of people um, or to go look up the Pueblo Revolt. And to really understand where our, what our people went through. Well, tell us more about this this um, this project, the Pueblo Revolt retelling. I mean, what what does it look like? What's the experience for for people that go check it out? Yeah, definitely. Like you can see a lot on my website, which is just my name.com, right? And like a lot of the behind the scenes of every different project that I work on, like for the past two decades, like whether it be a museum exhibition, a gallery show. I release a little bit of the storyline and the characters along the way. So like throughout um, this summer, it was like the year of the recon watchmen and the aeronaut characters. So what they're doing is coming from um, 2180 back to historic times, the present time. And what they're doing is collecting imagery, our songs, our dances, our, our ways of life, um, ceremonies, our, our designs and potteries, our shards, taking them to 2180, storing them or protecting them so that, when we get to that timeline, all of our designs and everything are still in, in, intact. Um, we don't lose anything. So it's really um, trying to make people of the next gen- generation be aware of like what we have and how rich we are in our communities of um, all of the ceremonies and songs that we do have and how important it is to really take part in that and to be a part of the, the bigger family. And in, in like I'm talking about our Pueblo, right? It's just like a huge family that we are all together and we all support one another um, through a birth or a death. Everybody's there for one another. And that's just amazing to be a part of. And the support that comes for that is like, you guys can't even tell, like, I mean, I can't even say how much I appreciate it. Um, But uh, it's just to make people aware of what's like, yes, we are thriving. We're still here living, creating. And, you know, I don't have to reimagine what we're going to look like in the future. I know what we're going to look in the future. We're still going to be a people still with our songs, our hearts, our prayers all together, all one. So um, it's just fun to uh, dabble in everything and creating it this way, using all different types of mediums that I do work in, whether it be film, jewelry, fashion, whatever. Okay. Well, Virgil, I'm glad you recognize you know 
you understand and, and you know what indigenous native people are going to look like in the future, what we're going to be in the future, because, you know, there's these hypotheses out here that the future will be humans eventually evolving into kind of a homogenous racial group, essentially a mix of different races, no distinct mm-hmm. racial identities, characteristics we possess now. Um, what's your thought on that? It sounds like um, you don't see that as our future. Well, it's like, so, I mean, we're all pure, right? And, like, the support that we have within our family and our communities, we know our songs, we know our language. And, like, to, I mean, it's just a a step into the future of, like, yeah, maybe we might be, like, the women might be wearing, like, (laughs) super cool cool, uh, um, regalia and everything, but, like, we're going to adapt as we need to, but we also have the truth of who we are as people, and that has not changed for who knows how long. So, when I'm back in, um, in Cochiti, like when, you know, I miss a lot of the dances cause I'm out on the uh, road working a lot. But when I go back and I try to make it for certain dances that, you know, we're still putting on the same regalia, we're still going into our same Kiva's houses and singing some of the same songs, some new songs, but that keeps us all together. So it's like, you know, I have no doubt we're going to, um, thrive, whether it be in the past, present and forever, basically. So listening to you, Virgil, you mentioned some of these old school sci-fi shows like Battlestar Galactica. And then yeah. I'm kind of envisioning like native people on the USS Enterprise um, with, I, I don't know, just kind of <laughs> like uh, they've got those those Captain Kirk outfits, but they've got kind of a native twist to them. I, I don't know. It sounds like a cool, exciting future for sure. And um well, you know, you've got, you do so many different types of artwork and how else do you incorporate some of these elements we're talking about today, indigenous futurism into the other work you do? Yeah, right. Like right now, for example, I'm working on a museum exhibition that's going to open May 13th at the History Colorado Museum in Denver. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, like I, for different uh, exhibitions or gallery shows, I introduce a new character or focus, put the spotlight on them. And for this opening, it's going to be about the runners and the gliders. The runners are, are the characters, are real people that um, help pull off, help Pope, the leader of the Pueblo Revolt, pull off the, the revolt in 1680. And their job was to run from the northern Pueblos to the southern Pueblos all along the way. They were carrying knotted cords, and they dropped off these knotted cords with the heads of all the Pueblos. And... They instructed the heads of the pueblos to untie one knot every morning. So when the last knot was untied, um, that's how they timed the revolt. So they pushed out the invaders altogether, and it was like a successful revolt. So uh, my inter- interpretation of what is going to be shown at this at the History Colorado uh, Museum is that the runners portray uh, will be portrayed in 1680, but gliders are the new runners that are in 2180. So they'll be wearing like the the wing costumes and gliding all over instead of running. So it's just like my way of what is in my head. And <laughs> like it just comes out in the artwork. And, <laughs> you know, I let it kind of guide with the messaging that I do get, the prayers that I do sent out and ask for help from past mem- family members that are gone. There um, are Pueblo people, you know, I'm trying to listen to them as much as I can and help guide um, the way I'm putting it into, into reality, into uh, right now. It sounds really, really cool. And, and tell me more Native audiences who, who see some of these projects that you've worked on. What's the feedback you're getting? It's really cool. I mean, like a lot of the, it's all basically um, going back to what our people as ceramic artists 
um, have done in Cochiti. So what they were doing, like historic pieces, you see these really flipped out and really cool um, looking pieces. So the more I started to study them, they're basically recording a timeline. And any uh, more of the non-Indigenous people that were being brought into the area via the newly laid railroads that were being built around all the pueblos, right? So um, brought more people, more tourists, which were brought more entertainment. So like um, shows like the operas or either the circuses that were came through town, um, the uh, Pueblo people seen them, made caricatures of them in clay, and they were recording a timeline. So um, going back to that idea, using giving voice back to the clay and having the clay document a timeline and tell our history, and then also really bringing it into film. It, 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 all the different um, mediums that I do work with always support each other. So needless to say, I'm never bored when I'm switching from fashion, costume design, storyboards. Um, and like the movie script has been, like, been rewritten like almost five times now. And it's always going to be doing that until we go into production just because it's um, just taking a – I mean, I – the more people I meet, the more uh, museums I work in, you know, um, I answer the door, more people are wanting to join and um, it's just growing. So the more I've never went to school for any of this. So I know um, it's all like um, less what entails basically of learning how to do it and trial and error. So my team and I have been are um, and really enjoy uh, creating the uh, the storylines, learning how to do AR, VR, which is in the works right now, which we we're trying to release it for the show in Denver, so it's kind of exciting to bring that type of work. Um, you know, I've been labeled as an indigenous futurism, and um, I, I accept all labels. Call me what you want as long as you call me. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? If I have your attention, good. You know, it's for a reason, and I do know it's not about me. It's um, It's way bigger than I am, and I've learned that lesson since I was 15 years old. And I am, you know, being guided by our, the, our spirits. And, you know, I know that what I have to do and get the point across. And it's, again, um, educating globally about our people. Right on, Virgil. Uh, congratulations on all of your success. And uh, really appreciate you joining us today and, and sharing uh, some of your insights and uh, some of your experience uh, Anybody who has a question for Virgil or one of our other guests, uh, phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. Joining us now from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Michael Shayashi. He is an artist and founder and technologist at Alter Native Media. Michael is Caddo. Michael, it's great to talk with you again. Sedentia, thanks for having me. How's it going? Uh, we're doing great, Michael. Really enjoying this conversation. And earlier, I asked Johnny uh, for a, a, a straightforward definition of the term indigenous uh, futurism, and she used the phrase indigenous imagination. Um, do you have anything to add to that in terms of helping our listeners get a better understanding of what indigenous futurism means? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I want to start out and say that, you know, uh, from, from uh, Johnny and, and, and Virgil, like, I can't say it much better than they have, right? And so that's that's fantastic. And I'll just kind of uh, put a, punctuate that with a joke that you know, as far as indigenous, you know, imagination, I wish I had more of it, right? But no, um, I think that's a great way to think about it, right? Because you know, we can say, well, is it sci-fi? Well, is it this? And and great, you know, if you if you know what sci-fi is, or you have a, a you know a chomp on that, 
that's a great way to get your toes wet in this idea of futurisms, but also of, you know, um, imaginations, right? And so understanding that it's complex, just like an imagination would be, that it can be whatever, you know, um, that particular peoples might say, that's really what it is. It's, it's taking the, the generalization of a genre, if you will, of sci-fi or whatever you're picking, and really nuancing it down to not only just specific people as an indigenous people, but you know, what's your family story? What's your community story? What does that mean? What is, how does your past and your present, and your future all combine? How, how do they relate to each other, right? And so the um, imaginations part, right, comes from making sure that we bridge those gaps and make people understand that sort of uh, nuanced, uh, windy turns. Okay. Folks, we're going to talk more with Michael after our break here. Uh, phone number, if you have a question for the show, is 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Indigenous futurism, that's the topic of our show today. We'll be right back. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about telling our own indigenous futuristic stories in art and entertainment, envisioning, envisioning indigenous communities, culture, and science in the future is called indigenous futurism. How do you see us as characters in movies set in the future? Would it be anything like the new Avatar film? There is still time to join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Michael Shayashi, and he has a background in technology, in comic books. And Michael, uh, you know, traditional science fiction, it's been criticized. Uh, for one, uh, consistently in the past has had a, a lack of minority perspectives. And it also sometimes features themes of exploration, discovery, and colonialism. And how do you see indigenous futurism rewriting those narratives uh, in comic books and, and some of the other work that you'd work on? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do indeed seeing it as rewriting it. And it's it's great that you brought up, you know, telling our own stories. I kind of joke that that's sort of my, you know, two inch soapbox. It's something that I always mention when we when we talk about, you know, the the need for uh indigenous people to make sure our stories are accurate, right? And and have some uh, authority within it. And you're right, you know, traditionally speaking, um sci fi in itself um, has had all these issues. And conversely, though, I'll bring up that, you know, sci-fi as a genre, and we include, like, movies and, and novels and such and, um, and prose, really has been sort of like a, an anecdote or a metaphor for other things, right? So while I, I absolutely agree with what Johnny was saying, and, and she was so succinct in all, all her, her details, really, you know, um, the only thing I can say good, right, about the particular subject we're talking about today is not only the CGI, again, having that technology background, but, hey, we're talking about it, right? And we're talking about why it's important that we tell our own stories. So, you know, great for Avatar doing that for us. But otherwise, you know, the metaphors need to be ones that we can understand. And, and I, this, for me, like, you know, 
Avatar becomes like the 1970s movie um, Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman, right? Which was also a novel, obviously, but you know, I'm more familiar with the pop culture version of it. And so you know, it's a great metaphor, right? And there are native people, there's native stories, but there's a, a central character that's not native that, as Johnny was kind of suggesting, was, is the white savior, if you will, right? And that's where it becomes a problem. But conversely, you know, that movie allowed people to go, oh, I get it. This is, you know, that was, you know, horrible to treat Native people like that. But, you know, as we all know, that was sort of the story's metaphor about Vietnam, right? So, again, these metaphors need to be clear. So it's great that people may be going, oh, right. And, and you know, this story of Avatar tells a specific tale that is happening here on Earth in present day, maybe to some indigenous people. But what we keep coming back is that lack of specificity, Right. Um, you know, what can we do better? What is the issue? Is that metaphor true or is it just a generalization? And that's where I think the downfall comes. We've got a caller listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Carrie, you're on the air. Hello, Carrie. Can you hear us? Looks like we lost Carrie here. Uh, Michael, I, I want to ask you because, you know, you mentioned how these metaphors need to be really clear and concise. And what are some other tips and, and just uh, insights in terms of what goes into really good storytelling, especially for Native audiences? Well, I think you picked up on it, right, is, is knowing your audience. And that's what we talk about no matter what the storytelling is, right? And, and our audience is, uh, you know, as we keep going back and forth between the macro to the micro of, quote, indigenous down to a specific tribe, community, or family, it's that dichotomy, that balance, right? Like, how do we be general enough to tell a great story, but really allow different individuals to feel like they have some buy-in? Okay, so a very generalized portion of this was, you know, Virgil kind of mentioned this earlier, and I really picked up on this, which is, you know, the Battlestar Galactic, Star Trek, all the early stuff, you know, like the earlier stuff of sci-fi. And that really, like, speaks to us, right? And so some ways we grab onto that and, and really glob on, and, and it becomes important to us. For me in Star Trek, Spock always seemed more indigenous, if you will, native to me. But maybe it was more, say, you know, Jewish to somebody else or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's me, right? It's, Spock is native to me, so... Well, Leonard Nimoy was definitely Jewish. We can right. we can add that insight for sure. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and his little you know live long and prosper sign is is you know coming from the Jewish community. But again, growing up, I can't think of another native person that would say, "Oh no, no, I didn't think of him as native." No, everybody did, right? So, right, right. It looks like we've got Carrie back on the line. Carrie, are you there? I am. Hi, um... Carrie. So I want to say that my husband and I, we've actually been collecting Virgil Ortiz art for a couple of years now, and it's spoken to us as non, as non-Native Americans, just because we love the storytelling of it. But my question is more sociology-based, like a social issue. He and I work in mental health, and a lot, and I work, and I work specifically with teenagers and young adults. By default, a lot of the young people I work with are tribal, indigenous, even from out of state. And I'll be honest with you, working with a group I work with, it's rough out there. Sometimes it's easy to be depressed and a little, and start to lose hope a little bit. Have you found that through the writing in general, the art, just the media representation, has that affected specifically teenagers and young adults within the tribal communities to bring that initiative, to bring a little hope, to start talking about those ideas 
that need to be talked about and done. Carrie, thanks for that question. Virgil, do you want to respond to that? I think just, yeah, definitely like when I do work with students, it's very important to really let them know, like um, I always try to um, say this quote that I made up myself is called no, no more imaginary hurdles. So that means like to never have self-doubt with you, try and do whatever you want to do, learn as much as you can and to have them be inclusive. Cause a lot of the times that like when I was growing up, I didn't, um, my first language was English. And at that time with my age group, they're pushing us to learn a lot more English and, and academic um, going to school and all. And a lot of our age group didn't learn too much of our language, but I felt kind of a little bit of a out, um, not an outcast, but just like a little bit different because I didn't know um, like um, our native language was in our first, my first language. And right now I'm trying to learn that and to really incorporate myself back into the community to help others like that too. So I want to really help them and show them that art is there for them. Art will, you know, art saves lives. It saved my life, but to really not be afraid to ask questions and to, you know, we're all here to help one another, but um, whether it be indigenous, uh, Kids or non-indigenous kids, we're, we're all, we all still feel the same, the same energies and all. And how to even like um, when you when you get up in the morning to recalibrate yourself, your center yourself, um, to really um, set your your path for your day of positivity and to really learn as much as you can from um, whoever you can learn from. But um, yeah, definitely, it's like I, I, I mean, for us, like when we have our dances and all, it's like. I see now when I'm older is that I, we really have to incorporate the kids and into learning our backgrounds, our histories, and using art is my way to do that, my contribution. Virgil, thank you for that response. And let's go ahead and, and bring in our fourth guest on the show today. Joining us now from Seattle, Washington is Sate Garones Esquivel. He's the art lead and character designer for Hill Agency Purity Decay. He's Tayindanega, Mohawk, and of Mexican descent. Welcome to Native America Calling, Sate. Sego. Uh, I'm Sate Glonis. Uh, glad to be here, Sean. You bet. It's great to have you on the show and I appreciate your patience here uh, while we talk to some of our other guests. Now, Sate, tell us more uh, about the work that you do. You provided artistic talent, I know, to a science fiction role playing game called Coyote and Crow. Tell us more about that. Yes. Yeah, I did. Um, so I have been a professional artist for about 20 years. Uh, mostly I've just been doing stuff and people don't really know who I am, but they'll see my art somewhere. Um, uh, Coyote and Crow is a uh, tabletop role-playing game, and like in the same vein of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, but it is an indigenous futurism uh, version of Turtle Island unburdened by colonialism. So that is a, a chance to experience a world that's not based on colonial tropes. And is it a popular game, especially amongst Native people? Um, it is. It uh, was launched through Kickstarter and set a Kickstarter record when it went live. And uh, I've been to a few vendor events here in Seattle, and I bring my copy of the Core Rule book. And uh, it's been really popular because a lot of Native people, uh, we do like tabletop gaming. We like gaming in general. And uh, it's been it's been really popular. A lot of people ask me, like, where can I get that? And I send them to the you know the website so they can order. Sounds really cool. Uh, you work on video games too? 
Yes, I do. Uh, I started as a concept artist. Uh, first game I ever worked on was uh, for the Saw movie franchise. Um, and uh, currently I'm working uh, for a studio based out of Hamilton, Ontario, called Achimo Stawanan Games. And we're doing uh, Hill Agency, Purity Decay, which is uh, we're calling a cyber noir mm. indigenous futurism game. Sounds fascinating. Listeners, we talked about uh, the role-playing game that Satte has worked on called Coyote and Crow. It was back in March of 2021. So if you take a look at our website archives, uh, you can take a listen to the recording of that show back uh, about two years ago. Now, Satte, are you a role-playing game uh, enthusiast yourself, or you just uh, lend your creative expertise to the, to the production? I actually have a uh, semi-regular game with some friends uh, that, you know, when we can get our schedules aligned. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I actually do play uh, a lot of games in my downtime, uh, which I'm having less and less of these days. So. <laughs> See, that's the thing for me. I remember as a kid when those, you know, like when Dungeons and Dragons became really popular and, and I remember thinking it was pretty cool, but those games, they, they are a significant investment in time. Are they not? Yes. Yes, they are. Um, you know, the hardest part really is, you know, as you get older, finding, you know, three to four hour block where everybody's schedule aligns to be able to play. Um, one of the things that's been really helpful in the last you know, several years is the uh, in, inception of online playing games like Roll20, uh, where you can actually find, or even Discord, uh, find people who are you know, not in your local area that you can play online with. And that's been a big uh, boon to the Native American community of gaming online. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really cool to be a part of that. We've got time for another caller. Nicole is listening on KUNM in Albuquerque. Nicole, thank you for calling in today. Hi. Hi. Hey, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, okay, you sound great. Um, good. I was uh, calling in today. You had a caller on earlier who was um, speaking about the movie Avatar and how um, the credits were not given and things of that nature. Um, I've been in education for over 20 years um, in early education, and then for the last four in early intervention here in New Mexico. Um, about six years ago, I started becoming more intimately involved with uh, indigenous peoples, and these children are so precious. They are so deserving of everything that everyone else, every other child and every other culture deserves. And uh, for us to continue this narrative of not involving, especially when you have a movie like Avatar, and just to uh, let you know how I responded to that movie on the second one, I walked out of the theater in tears. Mm. I was in utter emotional wreck. I'm walking out of there after the, the son died uh, for these people to want to destroy their land, but then to come back and say, well, we have okay. a target because this person has left. They they turned their back on us because they felt they were doing wrong. Uh, and so they're going after this person, but destroying, continuing to destroy the lands and to destroy the trees and just destroy just everything around them until they meet their target. Um, and so it's as if, you know, we continue to place that target on indigenous people and 
Like, okay, okay. well, we're going to use your storyline. Nicole, I really appreciate your call today. I, I'm sorry, though, just in the interest of time, we're running down uh, the wire on the show, but I appreciate your feedback and, and, and your perception of what you thought of the movie Avatar. And I want to go back to Satde and talk a little bit more uh, about your work, Satde, uh, your video game, uh, the board game, the role-playing game as well. And, and tell us more about how you incorporate in indigenous futurisms in your game art. Yeah, so um, when it comes to Hill Agency, uh, that was actually a spinoff of some other indigenous futurism work that I had done. Um, uh, I've done the posters for a writing, uh, science, imagining indigenous futurism science fiction writing contest, and that put me in contact with the studio owner, uh, Megan Byrne, and uh, she asked if I would be interested in doing some character design work for Hill Agency. Um, she liked my work, and we work really well together. And um, I'm now the art lead on the project. Uh, Hill Agency itself is um, its a version of the noir genre and sort of like smash that together with like a Blade Runner-esque aesthetic. So we are kind of using that 1940s feel of noir and we're incorporating a futurism where indigenous people, you know, have their own communities and they are, you know, it is a cultural sort of revival. Um, in our story, the essentially colonizers have left the planet due to pollution and whatnot. And there's just very few cities left. And the one we are based in is, you know, largely left to the indigenous people who have taken to revitalizing the land. But like any good noir, it is a murder mystery. Mm. Well, it sounds like a, a really, really intriguing uh project. And unfortunately, folks, that is all the time we have for our discussion today on Indigenous Futurisms and Arts and Entertainment. I do want to thank all of our guests and our callers as well. Thank you for sharing your time and insights. It's been a really, really enlightening conversation. Please join us next week for another lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Our engineer this week is Roman Garcia. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. This Native American Heritage Month, remember one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. Indian Healthcare
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.